all you guys back there, put your knives away. We need the fingers more than we need the money, okay? <laughs> hey, now today uh, we're going to come to what I think is probably one of the most revealing passages in the Bible. And there's a lot of neat things in the Bible, and uh, we talk about them all the time, you know, on Thursday night Bible study and, and all of that. But uh, this is one here. Just a minute. I got This thing is running way too fast here. We'll feed you tomorrow. There's <laughs> a little guy in there who runs everything around here. <laughs> uh, this is one of the most revealing passages of Scripture that you're ever going to find. And uh, I, I, the book of Proverbs has always been one of my favorite books. I just love it. If the, I've told you before, if there's any one single book I wish I could get my hands on and just complete have total recall with it, it would be the book of Proverbs. And, you know, one of the things that we have learned about Proverbs is the theme of Proverbs. And the themes of Proverbs is a wise man and a foolish man. But then there's also a counter theme in Proverbs, and that is a strange woman, which we know now represents false religion, and the evil man, which we have defined in our study as the world system, you know, everything in the world out there. And uh, the book of Proverbs simply warns the man of Proverbs to stay away from both the evil uh, man and the strange woman. And in the book of Proverbs, the end result is real simple. The wise man does and the foolish man does not. A wise man takes the principles of God. He stays with God. He stays away from uh, the things that uh, are going to pull him down, and uh, he, he, he keeps growing in the Lord and becomes and gets the handle on the issues of life. A foolish man, on the other hand, he gets taken in her web, in her trap, and the trap of the evil man, and they get swaddled up in it. We've seen it almost every chapter. And really, we haven't even got into the book of Proverbs yet. It doesn't start officially until chapter, uh, chapter 7. Now, we know that from a doctrinal sense, the man in Proverbs is the nation of Israel. Thursday night when we went through our really in-depth uh, dispensation, I, I showed you how that in Matthew chapter 25, you have ten virgins. Five were wise and five were foolish. And I showed you how that those are tribulation Jews who were going through the tribulation. But my point is, five were wise, five were foolish. That man in Proverbs that is told to be wise or he's going to wind up a fool, doctrinally is the nation of Israel. And you, you, you should know that. But, and the strange woman and the evil man will, like as I said, will be the false religion in the world system that the Antichrist during the tribulation will use to destroy the nation of Israel. But from a practical standpoint, how it applies to me and you, we already understand that false religion abounds and the world system abounds. So for inspirationally for us, it's something else. And uh, I'm going to tell you right now, this is kind of going to be a hard message, but I'm going to enjoy it. It's going to be a fun message. I, I won't make it, you know, I've learned a long time ago how to preach to people, and I've been doing this for a long time. And I know that, you know, when you, when you want, and I tell my young preachers this, you know, when you, when you got something really hard to say, 
you always kind of make people feel comfortable, you know, uh, like what I'm doing right now. You know, you get your feeling comfortable, make you laugh, and you get off guard, and then wham, then you hit you. You see, that's how it works. So I'm just telling you up front, I like this message, so I don't know if you don't. That's your problem, not mine. I don't know what to tell you. But it, it, it's, it's, I think it's a great one. And in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, we have an inside look at the mindset of the man of sin, as we commonly know him, the devil. And this is one of the most incredible passages in the Bible on, on the devil and how he thinks. We've talked a lot about patterns of thought. And you know as well as I do, uh, in, in the military, in any war, you have a, a branch called military intelligence. And military intelligence, in its simplest form, is a group of people who try to find out what the enemy's thinking and how they're going to plan something. And really, honestly, if you can figure out your enemy's mindset and what they're thinking and what they're going to do, then, then you've got an advantage on them. And that's what Proverbs does here in this chapter. You'll remember uh, in the book of Job, chapter 41, I told you uh, that chapter 40 and 41 were the greatest chapters in the Old Testament on the person of the devil. And in the New Testament, it's Revelation chapter 12 and chapter 13. And in chapter uh, 41, 12 of the book of Job, it says, Job says, I will not conceal his, talking about the devil, I will not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his comely proportion. And then he says, who can discover the face of his garments? And by that passage, it shows us that the devil likes to uh, mask himself. He likes to present himself not as the devil. When he showed up with Eve in the garden, he didn't show up in a red union suit with a long tail and a pitchfork. He showed up as an angel of light. He showed up quoting the Bible. See, that's how he works. So, Proverbs really helps us understand that. The Bible will uh, expose every aspect of not just who he is or how he works, but most important, how he thinks. And when the Bible gives you the mind of Christ, and we've talked about that many, many times, you better believe that it will also give you the mind of the devil. And it's very important that you see that. And in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, you find the six things that God hates. Now that, if you were just coming through your Bible, that ought to be your first clue, something special here. Proverbs 6, verse 16, six things. Six, six, six. See? So right out of the chute, you know you got something going on because in Revelation chapter 13, verse 18, we know that's his number. Now I want to lay this out into two formats. Today I want to do it from a practical standpoint. I want to give it to you in a very practical way. And then next week, I'm going to, your Bible students are going to love next week. I'm going to take you down underneath and really show you this thing. It's quite incredible how it dials itself into the whole Bible. But today, we're going to look at the practical side of it. Now, let's read it. Let's all turn to Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, and begin reading here. And it says this. These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him, a proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord 
among the brethren. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We do love you. And we ask you today, Father, to give us insight into this. This is such a great passage. And, there's, and Lord, it's a great passage for these great people that are here today because they're good people. And Lord, most of them want to do what's right. Most of them want to grow. Most of them want to be everything that God wants them to be. So help me today to, to meet that need uh, from these great scriptures. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it, amen. Now the Bible says there are six things here that the Lord hates. And yet when you read it, he says that he adds a seventh one into the passage. And you got six things that are totally against God. And yet the seventh one makes it an abomination. And uh, as they stand in your Bible, they'll form the seven unclean spirits of the unholy characteristics of the devil himself, his makeup, his mindset, the principles by which he operates, and, and might I say the principles by which he destroys man, whether man's saved or man's lost. Now, for a moment, I want you to turn over to John chapter 8, verse 44. This is a very familiar passage, but I want to kind of lay this thing out for you here. John chapter 8, verse 44 says this, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your fathers ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Now, the thing that I want you to see there is this. Man in an unsaved state, spiritually speaking, is of his father, the devil. Now, I preached that message. I preached a message on that years ago, and a year of your father, the devil, and a woman got upset with me afterwards, and she came up, and, and she shook her little finger into my face, and she said, you know what, I really was offended that you said that, uh, uh, that, uh, that my spiritual father uh, in my, is the devil. And I said, well, ma'am, I didn't mean to offend you, but I got to be honest with you. I heard this same message years ago, and I was offended. So I'll suggest to you that you do what I did when I got offended, and that was I changed families. I got saved, and now I'm God's child. I left the old family, and now I'm in the new family, you see. And, but spiritually speaking... When a person is unsaved, their spiritual family is the devil. And the simple fact is that these things listed here are what unsaved people do. He says, ye of your father the devil and the lust of your father you will do. So unsaved people do these because they're of their spiritual father the devil. When you and I get saved, we are supposed to be different. We're supposed to follow the things of God, not the things of the devil. But the simple fact is this. Even though that unsaved people do the lust of their fathers, saved people can do these two. And let me show you how. Job chapter 26, you don't have to turn to it, uh, in chapter uh, 26 verses 1 through 4, it talks about six questions that God asks. We've showed you how that probably there are six questions that he's going to ask us at some point in time. But the last question he asked, I think, fits right into where we're at today. And he simply says, whose spirit came from thee? Whose spirit came from thee? Now, man has a spirit. Man has a body. Man has a soul. And man has a spirit. 
they're not the same. The body is different than the spirit. The spirit is different than the body. And the soul is different than the body, soul. They're, they're all different. They all stand for a function. You don't have to understand them today to grasp what I'm about to say. Your spirit in you, man's spirit, is your determination of your will. It's what you're going to do in life. You got a guy who climbs Mount Everest without any oxygen. Now, that's, that's a pretty strong spirit that a guy wants to accomplish that. Most of God's people can't go up four flights of stairs without an oxygen mask on. It's a thing where man's will is what drives us. Man's will is what gets us through and gets us to accomplish great things uh, because we have that spirit of man. But you also realize that when we talk, and you hear me talk a lot about association. Proverbs has a lot to say about association. Association is simply who and what you allow into your life. But association in its most basic, simple form is nothing more than you joining your spirit to something or somebody else. That's really what it is. In the Bible, there's four different spirits that prevail on planet Earth. You have the spirit of an animal, the Bible says in the book of Ecclesiastes. Your animals have spirit. Your animals don't have souls, but they have a spirit. You have the spirit of man. That's the spirit that's in you and me today that drives us. But then you also have the spirit of God. And you also have unclean spirits or the spirit of Antichrist, as the Bible says. And the thing that you got to remember now in this aspect of association and your spirit, saved or lost, you can join your spirit to two things. You can't join your soul to the devil if you're saved. You can't do that. But you can join your spirit. Your spirit is the influence in your life that you allow to control you. And they'll either be good or they'll be bad. Now, watch how simple this is. When a saved man aligns his spirit with God's spirit, and he finds other Christians that are like-minded, love God, love the Word of God, who share those same characteristics, then he bears the character qualities of Christ. We have in our prayer groups that we talk about the reason why we do them that way because they're made up of good quality people and they, 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 they kind of sharpen each other. As the Bible says, iron sharpeneth iron. You're in a group of people who share values. They share what you believe, what you love and you only get stronger from that. But when a saved man or person hangs out with a wrong crowd, or aligns their spirit with the uncleanliness of this world, then even though that person may be a child of God, they pick up the characteristics of their old father, the devil. And pretty soon they fall right back into the lust of that. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 through 19 is a biblical record in the Old Testament of the lust of your father, the devil, and it tells us Saved or lost, whatever you line your spirit to, the lust of your fathers you will do. 
You either align your spirit to the things of God and follow his characteristics, or you're going to align your spirit to the things of the devil and follow his. Galatians 5, 16 says this, I say that. Walk in the spirit, God's spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now there's the key. There's the key. In other words, just as the Holy Spirit is an influence over our human spirit to build God's character qualities in your life, the unholy spirits in this world. Proverbs 6, verse 16. The characteristics of these six, seven things that we will allow in our lives will be an influence in our lives uh, to, uh, uh, to live in wickedness. Take your Bibles one more time, I know, and turn over to Matthew chapter 12, first book in the New Testament. I want to show you an exact picture of this. I got the word exact stuck in my mind. How did that happen? Shows where you were Thursday night. Now, Matthew chapter 12, verse 43 through 45. Here's a great story. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through the dry places seeking rest and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house. That's the man's body that he left out of. And from thence I came out, and when he is come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. Then goeth he, the unclean spirit, and taketh with himself, here it comes, seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. Now that's a great picture, an illustration of the seven unclean spirits of the devil that take over a man's life and become the primary influence in his life instead of God. And I'm going to tell you right now, these seven here in Matthew 12 are the exact same ones we're about to look at in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 16. I guarantee you. Now, what we're about to look at are the seven influences of the devil, the way he thinks that make up his character, that make up his spirit. And it, these things will be in any man's life that does not follow the things of God. When we cease to operate by God's principles and pick up the influence of the old father and his lust, this is what happens, walking after the flesh and not after the spirit. Now, Let me say this before we jump into this thing. We're talking about association and influence in our lives here. And just as there are seven things that God hates, and we as God's people should stay away from them. We should stay away from the people that bring them into our world. But just there are seven things that God hates, there are also in the Bible seven things that God loves. And you should know them and look for them in the people that you associate with or the situations you allow yourself to get into. And I'm just going to say it. If you've been saved five years or longer and you don't know what they are, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. You won't be, but you should be. It's no wonder we have the issues in life we have. It's no wonder. You know, I deal... Most of my week has dealt with marital problems, couples coming in. And I want to tell you, 98% of them are just good people. 
They're just good people who have made one bottom line common mistake. And it's an easy mistake to fix. Hey, when they come in, they're laying out mountains of problems. And I always tell them, I say, you know what? These mountains that you just laid in my office here, they're, they're not the real problem. They're the symptoms. I'm going to simplify your whole issue by just showing you what the problem is. I use the goofiest illustration on planet Earth. It is so goofy and so simple, but yet it's so profound. I always let them go, and they tell me all their little deals, you know, and I can see by listening to them, they are great people. They're really good kids. But I also see they've got one fundamental problem. And if I can get them to fix this fundamental problem, they're, they're, all the things they think are problems just go in the air. I always tell them this story. I always say, yeah, you know, let me tell you what your real problem is. I said, the problem is that you have entered in the something that God calls marriage that is clearly defined in the Bible by which it has to run, and you have gotten into it without ever understanding what marriage really is, and now you wonder why you're having problems. And here comes my goofy little illustration. I say, you know what? It's a lot like if I would come home next uh, tomorrow and my wife would say that the dishwasher is broke. And she says, I'm going to call the dishwasher guy and have him come out, you know, and it's out of warranty, but we'll have to pay for it, but you got to wash the dishes. No, I say, honey, you got to wash the dishes. But you know how it goes. <laughs> and I tell her, I said, now, before you do that, let handyman fix it, Bob, take a look at it. Because they come with an order manual, and on the back, the last page, they always have troubleshooting if it will not work. So I go through the one thing that every married couple has in common, a drawer that we throw all of the owner's manuals of everything we ever bought in the last 50 years of our lives. And I'm going through them. There's this one. There's the dryer. There's the microwave. There's the coffee pot. Ooh, keep that one. There's this one. There's that one. There's that one. I go through the whole thing, and I cannot find for the life of me the, the handbook that guides me through fixing this dishwasher. But I found the one for the washing machine. I mean, let's reason this out. They both use water, and they both clean things. From my standpoint, from a man's standpoint, it ought to work. But how ridiculous is it to realize that the dishwasher has a complete different design and model and configuration and wiring and structure than my washer over here that I do our clothes in? How ludicrous would it be to think that I could fix the dishwasher with a handbook from the, the, the washing machine? And this is the problem with couples because when you enter into marriage, You've got into something that God designed. It wasn't man coming out of the cave and deciding to quit hitting women over the head and dragging them into the cave. Though that's an option that's pretty good sometimes. <laughs> it wasn't society got sophisticated and says, let's come up with marriage. Marriage is something that God designed. And any time you try to take something that God designed and then run it by another standard that God never intended it to run by, it's not going to work. 
In fact, I would have a better chance of fixing my dishwasher with a handbook from the washer than you will be trying to run a marriage that you got into forsaking the handbook that God gave you that it has to go by. Now, I say that because Christianity's in the same boat. This is what's wrong with a lot of God's people. Just like young couples, bless their hearts, are good people when they get into marriage without anybody ever helping them and explaining them and making it work for them. Most of God's people get into Christianity and never get discipled. Nobody ever shows them the fundamentals. So just like a couple enters into something called marriage that God designed that they have no idea how to run it, God's people actually get into Christianity and have no idea how they're supposed to run it because they forsake the handbook by which God gave them. So they get into all kinds of bad associations. They get into all kinds of bad problems and all kinds of issues. And it's a thing where that's the way it works. It's the craziest thing you ever saw. Now we have a non-Christian Christianity. So let's begin here. And let's look at the six things, and then we'll tie it into the seventh that makes it an abomination. Now, number one. Now we're back to Proverbs 6 here. Number one. God hates a proud look. Now, that's the first thing listed. And it's the first thing listed simply because that'll be the number one issue that we all have. It's our pride. I think it would be safe to say that all the other issues we have in life don't get solved because of pride. Probably most of them start because we do have pride. I guarantee you pride has sent more people to hell than all the combinations of sin that you can put together. Bible says a proud look. Pride may start in your heart, but it shows on your face. And boy, you can see it a mile away. Pride is what keeps an unsaved person from ever getting saved. They go to a religious church someplace and they're religious. And boy, you try to talk them about getting saved because they believe they've been baptized is going to get them to heaven. Or they believe this or they believe join in this particular church or whatever good works they do. And you try to show that person, and not by works of righteousness we have done, but according to his mercy he has saved us, and it's only the blood of Christ that will save you. And boy, you see that old pride just coming up. Pride, man. Pride is what keeps two Christians from working out a problem. I've dealt with problems between God's people all my lives. All my life. Only had one life. All my life. But on pride, many times, is what gets in the middle that both of them or one of them won't do what they need to do because they get prideful. I'll tell you something else. Pride is what keeps marriage couples from fixing the problems in their marriage. It, it really is. It's, all, it, it, it's this idea that it's all your fault. It's not my fault. It's all yours. It's not mine. I'm going to tell you something, man. I mean, I said it before. A husband and wives, they have to solve problems. They have to humble themselves to be able to solve them problems. I had a guy one time years ago, he said to me, and he said, well, my wife's just this, my wife's just that. And I'm not saying his wife didn't have some problems. And she said, well, my wife's this and that's that. And I, she's so weak. I'm the really the strong one in my family. And I said, that is wonderful. We got our problems solved now, don't we? He says, what do you mean? I said, the Bible says, Romans 51, ye that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. He didn't want to hear that. Pride. 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 Pride is, pride is why Christians and unsaved people lose their kids. 
I have a man in my life that I, he's dead now. His name was Mike Johnson. Mike Johnson will always be a hero in my life. I met Mike oh, over 20 years ago. And Mike, uh, you know, he was like so many of God's people that when, uh, when he, he went to church all of his life, but he didn't do what was right with his kids. You know, he was a deacon and he played the role and all that. And by the time his kids got to be 18 or 19 and 20, they didn't want to go to church anymore. They didn't want anything to do with God because they saw how foolish it was that their dad was one thing at home uh, but something else out in front of everybody else. And, and, and Mike came in, and, and he, was, he was absolutely broken. And I told Mike, I said, Mike, I said, here's what you have to do. If you ever want to have a chance to reach your kids, you're going to have to humble yourself with your children. And to make a long story short, he did what I told him to do. He called his four kids to a meeting in his home. And he brought them down, and in front of them, he apologized for all of the things that that he had not done. He didn't make a lot of excuses. He humbled himself before his children. He wept. He asked each one of them individually to forgive him where they have failed him as a father. He failed them as their, their father. He wept. He asked them to forgive them. He said, I can't go back and change the damage I've done, but I have the truth now. I know where I was wrong. And he says, I'm willing. I'm willing. And you know what happened. The kids automatically, <clears throat> automatically, when dad humbled himself, and dad with tears running down his face on his knees in front of his kids, begging them to forgive him for the, the stupid stuff that he has done and not done that, that kept them out of church. All the times he pretended he was this and he pretended he was that and he was a deacon and he was a leader and yet he lost his kids. You know what the kids did? They started to defend him. They started to say, well, dad, it's, it's not all your fault. In fact, the oldest boy said to him, he said, dad, it's not your fault I'm a loser. The boy knew he was a loser. You know what God did? But the time before old Mike died, all four of those boys, all four of those kids were back in church. Amen. Parents make mistakes. I've made mistakes. There were many a times that I've sat down with my kids and said, this isn't my fault, this is yours. No, many times I've sat down with my kids and I said, I blew this, kids, I'm sorry. But it's pride that won't let us do it. Somebody says, oh, I couldn't do that. I'm a deacon. I'm a pastor. I teach the Bible. I'm this or I'm that. I couldn't come off of my throne to lower myself to ever admit to my kids I was wrong. That's pride. Never get them that way. Got to humble yourself. Pride is the biggest structure problem we have. Pride will keep us from doing what's right and the right thing when we know exactly what the right thing is we need to do, we just won't do it. Now the second one. God hates a lying tongue. Preacher's walking down the street one day and <clears throat> saw four little kids, four little boys with a little puppy. And they're running around in a circle and they're kind of getting with each other, you know, and the preachers are worried they're going to hurt the dog. So he walks up and he says, hey boys, uh, what's going on here? And the boy said, we found this puppy, and uh, we're deciding who's going to take it by who tells the biggest whopping lies. Preacher looks at him, and he says, well, you know, kids, it's not right to lie. 
Lies not right with God. You don't want to lie. He said, when I was a kid your age, he said, I, I, I never would lie. You can't do that. And the kids got real quiet and looked at each other, and one of them finally said, okay, give him the dog. <laughs> Most Christians' favorite verses in Hezekiah 67, 38. Lying is an abomination in the sight of God, but a barely present help in a time of trouble. I, I know how it works. I know how it works. I'm somewhat an expert on dealing with subjects of lying because I've been lied to all my life by people. People who say I'm going to do something, and of course they never do. People who tell you half the story to keep their own side padded. Half true so they can position themselves in some situation. I've had people look me in the face and tell tell you the most unbelievable story uh, that they could think of because they, they want you to hear it uh, that you've ever heard and they don't even know that I'm already ahead of the game and I know the story and I know you're lying to me when you tell me. I, I just want to see if you're going to be honest. I'll never say a word. Two reasons why people lie. They lie because, one, they're afraid. And many times just go along with getting caught. They're afraid, so they simply don't want to tell the truth. I've had people say something to me that wasn't true, and later on when it all blew up, and it always does, I said, why didn't you tell me the truth? I don't care. And they said, well, Bob, I just didn't want you to think less or bad of me, and, and I just, and I, and I get that. I understand it. I get that. Sometimes they lie because they're just cowards and can't stand for any truth or situation. But they want to portray to the others that, uh, that they're a real strong Christian, you know. So they lie. Some people are just weak of character. And they lie because of the fact that uh, they just don't really have any character. They can't stop, they can't stand for anything, and yet they'll fall for everything. To them, lying is better than confrontation. I've seen that. I've seen problems start in the church where somebody had to get really dealt with and other Christians just couldn't. They would, outwardly, they would they pretend they were, but inwardly, cowards. You know why? Confrontation. Hey, I don't like confrontation. But you know what? There's a time when you're in charge and when you're the leader and you've got to deal with things that confrontation is the only way. But it's, 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 it's truth, the bottom line. Then the second reason that they lie is because you have people who are just habitual liars. They lie about everything. You don't believe anything they say. Everything about them is a lie. I've known people that they told the most unbelievable stories about themselves because they had a bad self-image or they, had, they wanted to portray themselves as somebody that they weren't. And they lie about everything in their life. I'm, I'm telling you. I've had them tell me some of the most <laughs> unbelievable stories, uh, lies that you could ever imagine. They lie about everything. And they're good at it. I guess they're professional liars, I guess. I don't know, but listen. You can lie so much that after a period of time, you lose the reality of truth and you start believing your own lies. Hey, over the years, I've had people in my life that I didn't believe anything they told me. 
I just smile and shake my head. Like a guy said one time, do you know how to tell when old Joe is lying to you? No, how? His mouth is moving. Boy, a lot of people just like that. I ain't kidding you. That's a dying truth. Well, the third one. God hates hands that shed innocent blood. You know, in society, especially in history, but even in current events today, you can always tell the moral fiber of any society by the standard of how they view human life and their respect for it. And America is just such a nation. America is a nation that has completely lost any respect for life, certainly any respect for authority. Uh, while we're told that, in, that all is well, I mean, you get in to read the Kansas City Star and all the news things, and they'll tell the bad thing, but they'll tell you how quick it's all this, and they'll tell you it's okay to do this and okay to do that, and you're safe to go here, you're safe to go here. I'll tell you something, folks. You ain't safe to go anywhere in this whole world. While we talk about cities being the murder capitals of the world, why, shoot, last year, the year before last in Kansas City, a bunch of city workers got fired because they were having a, they were having a betting of thing if the homicide rate in Kansas City would bust 200. That's a, that's a weird deal, man. I mean, you live in a bad place, man. They, they put out things, the 10 top, 10, top, 10 top cities for murder. I mean, hey, today people will kill you for your Air Jordans or your Nikes. They'll shoot you and kill you for your chief's leather jacket. You're safe if you wear a Royals one, but don't wear chiefs. <laughs> I had a guy tell me this story the other day. He says, you know what? He said, I, I, said, I, 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 was, I was going to go to the Royals game the other day, and we went in the house and, and come back out an hour later, and I left my tickets on the seat of the car. Plain view, everybody. I said, uh-oh, I know where this is going. He says, yeah. He says, somebody broke the window and threw in two more. <laughs> An interesting thing in the Bible, you're told in Luke chapter 22, verse 36, to buy a sword. Now, if you study that out, which we've been doing on Thursday night, watching the different dispensations, before that, when the kingdom was still coming, Jesus told them, you don't need a sword. He said, put away your sword. He said, you don't need one. Because they were going out under the guidelines of the kingdom of heaven and the Lord had everything set up. Once the kingdom is not coming and man now is going to have to figure it out for himself and the Lord's going to go back to heaven, he tells them, sell your garment and buy a sword. He says, you're going to have to protect yourself now. I mean, this... This, the shedding of innocent blood. I mean, people will kill you for anything today. And I, I have all the respect for the police officers and, and the law enforcement. I do. But they're not going to be any help to you. You know the, 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 the average response time for a 911 call in, in Kansas City is like 9 to 10 minutes? You know a lot can happen in 9 to 10 minutes? We're getting back to the old West days. Concealed carry permits are going out the window. And the liberals always drive me nuts with that. They want to have gun-free zones where you can't take a gun in. Only the bad guys can take them in. That's like going into a game preserve where all the buffalo and the elk and the deer are tied to a stake. You can just shoot them. 
We're getting back to the old West day. I'd love to see in the McDonald's when somebody got up and started to shoot somebody that they wound up having 100 bullet holes in him, all by 100 people who had guns to protect themselves. Now, the police carry guns, but they carry the guns to protect them. They're not going to protect you. As I said, a 911 call, the average time is 9 to 10 minutes. A 9 millimeters response time is 1,400 feet per second. You figure it out. Which one will get there faster? You see, we live in a degenerating nation and society. And any time we get that, any nation, then they forsake the principles of God. And when they do, unparalleled ungodliness sets in. From the millions and millions of innocent babies that are aborted every year to joggers in Raytown being shot in the morning at 6 o'clock when they're running. Or just someone out for a Saturday night as a drive-by shooting. Or you're driving home from work on 435 with some nutcase with a 9mm just pops bullets in cars. There's no safe place. That's the mark of the society that we are in. God hates those that are proud. God hates those that lie. God hates those that shed innocent blood. Well, look at the fourth one. God hates a heart that devises wicked imaginations. Bible says, the lust of your fathers ye shall do. Here they are. Here's the seven lusts in the devil's heart that unsaved people do all the time and God's people do more time than they should. Jeremiah 16, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Genesis 6 shows what happens when a world gives itself unto the devil and forsakes God. Bible says in Genesis 6, 5, And God saw the wickedness of man that was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That means it's ongoing. Now let me just stop here for a minute and show you what that produced in Noah's time. And you see the same thing today, because you don't want to forget Luke 17, 26 says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. If you would be so kind, turn over to Job chapter 21. Let me show you where it went in Genesis chapter 6, because I'll show you where it's going to go, where it's went today. Job chapter 21, verse 7, Wherefore do the wicked live, become old, yea, are mighty in power? Their seed is established in their sight with them, and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear, neither is the rod of God upon them. Their bowl gendereth, and faileth not, their calf calveth, and casteth not her calf. They send forth their little ones like a flock, and their children dance. They take the timbrel and harp and rejoice at the sound of the organ. They spend their days in wealth and in a moment go down to the grave. Wherefore they say unto God, depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit should we have if we pray unto him? Now come one chapter over and let me show you the context of this. Chapter 22, Job twenty-two fifteen. Hast thou marked the old way, which wicked men have trodden, which were cut down out of time, whose foundation was overthrown with a flood? We're in Genesis 6. Which said unto God, here it comes, depart unto us, and what can the Almighty do for them? 
Now, that's the end result of a society. That's the end result of a family, a father and a mother, who gets away from God and lets the Spirit get from God and get back into that world system and build the seven wrong character qualities in their lives and also in their kids. Now, I want you to look at 2115. Here's the real issue today. And brother, this thing is right on the money. 14, therefore they say unto God, depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. What is the Almighty? You notice they didn't ask who is the Almighty? They've relegated God completely out of being a person. They're not saying who is the Almighty. They're saying, what is the Almighty? That is a generation of a breakdown, of a complete breakdown of a knowledge of anything about God. And it started with the parents. In a time that the wickedness in their imagination of their heart was only continually evil. There it is. Right out there for you. All right, look at the fifth one. God hates feet that are swift to running to mischief. You know, I I always think it's a terrible thing to to get into sin. I think the problems that, uh, you know, that we get into that wreck our lives are, uh, it's a terrible thing. Most of my life is spent trying to help people get out of bad situations that they probably shouldn't have got into, but uh, they get into them, and sometimes you can help them, sometimes you can't. But and we all can fall for that trap. I mean, I never deal with somebody with a problem that, that I get judgmental with them because I know that, you know, I got my own issues and my own problems, and it happens to human beings. But what I think is even more horrible is people who simply never learn from the lessons of their mistake. My wife teaches principles to the girls that come over. She has a whole group that comes over on a regular basis. And, uh, and uh, one of her favorite great principles uh, about people who get into problems and never learn from the problems is she talks about the fact that they just, you know, when you go through something, you go through a lot of pain. You go through a lot of things that hurt. Sometimes you hurt a lot of people. Sometimes you hurt yourself. Sometimes there's a lot of pain involved. And the thing that most people that she, principle she always brings up that most people waste the hurt. They never learn from the hurt. They'll hurt their wives or they'll hurt their husbands and they'll never, they'll never feel the pain of that. They'll never get, they'll never see that. They're so busy lying about themselves to cover their own self that they'll, they'll say terrible things to their husband or terrible things to the wife. Instead of just coming clean and saying, you know what, uh, and, 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 and because of that, it's an endless cycle of just wasting the pain and wasting the hurt. Bible talks about in the book of Proverbs and also in the New Testament, it talks about a dog returning to his own vomit. It talks about a, a, a sow uh, returning to her own mire. And that is so true of so many of God's people. I've seen Christians that get into a bad marriage and go through some terrible times. And when they finally get out of that thing, whether it works out good or bad, you know what they do? They turn right around and can't wait to do it all over again. They didn't learn a thing from the pain. They didn't learn a thing from the hurt. Hey, let me, the pain that we and I, you and I go through, the hurt that we experience because of the dumb things that we do, I'm not saying you don't want to drag it around and beat yourself over the head with it. I'm not suggesting that. 
But I am suggesting that you don't forget it because it's that very pain that'll keep you from going back into those same situations again. I've seen people go from one bad situation to another, never happy, never fulfilled, never satisfied, but they just run from one terrible ordeal to another and never learn a thing from the pain of their disobedience and their experience. You know why? Proverbs 2, we studied it months ago. Proverbs 2, verses 13 and 14. It talks about a group of people who leave the path of uprightness and walk in the ways of darkness. And it says, who rejoice to do evil and delight in the frowardness of the wicked. That's why they enjoy it. They enjoy it. Their feet are swift to run to do what they want to do. They, get, they, don't, they never experience the pain because they're too busy running to the next situation. But it'll all catch up with you at some point in time. If you have kids, it'll catch up to you when your kids do exactly what you do. You're a drug addict, they'll be a drug addict. You're an alcoholic, they'll be an alcoholic. It'll all catch up to you at some time when you finally lose your marriage and you lose this and you lose everything. And then it comes down to the fact that you're left broken, busted, depressed. Instead of getting your daily dose of the Bible, you got to get your daily dose of Prozac to keep yourself moving. God hates feet that are swift to running to mischief, rejoicing to do evil. Now, I got to tell you, it's hard to believe that a child of God could or even would do that, but they do. Not only do they do it, but they brag about it. They put their face up on Facebook, showing them in their ungodliness and their sin. They brag about it. Their parents get behind them and say, well, well, you know what? He's my sweet little boy or she's my sweet little girl. Oh, he's a good guy. I had one lady tell me one time and her husband, her boy was the biggest fornicating drug drunk you ever met in your life. And she says, well, he's such a good boy. I said, compared to who? Freddy Krueger? Craziest thing you ever saw. God hates feet that are swift or running to mischief. I've had people couldn't get the Bible study, but boy, if there's a ball game where beer is served, you're there. Number six. God hates a false witness that speaketh lies. You ever have anybody say something about you that, that wasn't true. You know, I think of all the things that can hurt, that's probably the worst. You see this all the time in, in ministry and dealing with people. I, I, I have a group of people that, you know, you'll remember three or two, three years ago. Now I can't remember. We've been at it so long. I opened up to anybody in the church that really wanted to get in on a level of working with me in the counseling ministry and about 60 people signed up and, and really did. And, and we, you know, we come through, uh, we come through some really hardline stuff. I mean, uh, I give them the rules that they are to follow. And rule number one is that you learn never to take things personal. And, and I, I have that class with those people, and we're off for the summer now, but I have that class with the people for a number of reasons to build them up. But one of the reasons I do it, and the people who are in it, you know this is true, is to build a hardness in them to be able to go through these kind of things. When people don't want to do what's right and already have these other five qualities in their, of no character in their life, 
and they're faced with biblical options, many times they'll do what uh, they uh, always have done. They'll blame their problems on, on you instead of dealing with the issue as they should. You'll become the scapegoat. They will fabricate something about you that's not true or a half-truth or twist something to give uh, themselves a reason to justify for not, for not doing right. I've seen it all my life. Years ago, we all buy Dr. Ruckman's books, and, and some of our kids were down at his church here a couple weeks ago. Years ago, uh, when I was doing Bible conferences, and I preached in a number of Bible conferences with Dr. Ruckman, and him and I got to be, you know, somewhat friends, and, and we talk about a lot of things, you know, that he liked to talk about. And, and we were at a church one time up in New York, and um, at the end, all of the preachers would go out to, uh, would go out to dinner afterwards, you know, and have some time together. And um, the pastor up there at the church was a friend of mine, and, and uh, he was telling me about this kid that uh, was in the church that just always wanted to, uh, always wanted to go out and, and be able to have dinner with Dr. Ruckman, you know. And he asked me, he says, you know, I thought, what do you think about me inviting him out tonight? I said, oh, in my church, I don't care what you do. I always looked at this kid, and I, I've been up there many, many times preaching. I always looked at this kid as a wannabe. I never did like him, never did trust him. One of those first gut things, you know. But that wasn't my deal. And I said, I don't care. So he said, well, I think I'll let him come. He wanted to hang out with the big boys. Not that I was one of the big boys, but there were some big, big heavy hitters there at that time. And, and when I would go out to eat with him, I'd just keep my mouth shut and listen. Somebody would ask me something, I'd talk with them, but, but I, I, I wasn't ever pretending I was in that league with them. But this kid thought he was. And I'll never forget, we went to a place where they had all you could eat, chicken, fish, or something else. And I remember Dr. Ruckman got the fish and Dr. So-and-so got the chicken, all you could eat. And... <clears throat> And they were eating away, you know, and if you ever saw Dr. Ruckman eat, you just get out of the road. I mean, he's, he's got two things on his mind, preaching and eating. And when he eats, it's all over everything. He's the only preacher I ever know that wears his food really well. You take him to barbecue, it's over his forehead, it's in his ears, it's his face, it's on his shirt, and he doesn't care. I remember one time he preached at Canton Baptist Temple, and after the service, the people in the choir who were behind him got up there and uh, they were cleaning the church, and they found a note that somebody had passed to somebody in the choir. It says, I don't think he's pressed his pants since the last time he was here. <laughs> Probably didn't. I've seen him preach with one blue sock on and one white sock on. That's just my him, man. I mean, that's the way it is. <clears throat> well, anyway, <clears throat> they were done eating, <clears throat> and... Uh, <clears throat> Dr. I forget who it was now. Somebody big except the Dr. Ruckman. He says, well, how was the, the fish? And Dr. Ruckman said, oh, the fish wasn't that good. He says, uh, it wasn't really what I thought. He said, I, I should have got the chicken. And the other guy said, uh, well, he says, oh, I got two pieces here. I'm not going to eat any more. Go ahead and have those. Dr. Ruckman said, you sure? He says, yeah. And so Dr. Ruckman ate them. You know what that little punk did? For the next two years, that little punk went around to all his preacher friends telling a Dr. Ruppin stole chicken and didn't pay for it and was eating it at an all-you-could-eat deal and ate somebody else's chicken and didn't pay for it. Now, what a little punk that is. I caught up with him about a year later one time, and he was telling somebody that story, and I pulled that guy aside, and I said, you know what? It's only the fact that i got to preach in the next 20 minutes, keep you taking on the parking lot and running you over in a car. I don't even have a car. I'll steal one to do it. <laughs> but that's what happens. That's what happens. They'll lie about you. You'll disciple somebody and they won't make it and they don't count the cost before they get in it 
and then they're going to blame you on it. I had a lady leave the church one time about five or six years ago. <clears throat> she was up mad with me, and, and she was mad at a lot of you ladies. And uh, I, I knew she was problems when she came in, but you know me. I give everybody a shot. And uh, I gave her, I gave her, I mean, all the ladies that worked with her are, are sitting here this morning. I gave her to the four or five of the best gals that I had in a row. She started with this girl and didn't like this girl after two weeks. Something wrong with her. She started, I gave her somebody else. She didn't, didn't, because, you know, so she, and then after three weeks, didn't like this person. I gave her somebody else, didn't like this person. I gave her somebody else, she didn't like this. Finally, her and her husband come over one time, showed up unannounced and said, we need to talk. And I said, okay, what's the deal? And, she, and he said, well, we're just really upset and going to leave the church, we think. And I said, okay, what are you upset about? And he said, well, the women in this church just don't like my wife. And I said, you mean the five women that she's worked with? And she says, yeah, every one of them have a problem with my wife. And I said, aren't you sure, baby, that every one of them, your wife has a problem with every one of them? How can you say that? Well, I just, what do you want me to do? I'm out of women. <laughs> I don't have any more. You've used up every good woman I got. What do you want to do now? I got two labs downstairs. One of them could probably do it. What do you want? I've got five quality women. You take those five women that your wife doesn't like and you say they didn't do a good job. You add up the women in our church that they've worked with and helped and brought through tough times. You got 50 people in our church. They didn't like that. They left. So long. It's so nice to know you. What are you going to do? That's the reality of human nature. You'll invest your life in somebody. You'll take enormous amounts of time to help them. And they get to a point that they don't want to go any farther. And then they spend all the rest of your life blaming you simply because they're worthless. That's just the way it works. Lust of the fathers, they will do. False witness that speaketh lies. Now that's the reality of human nature. This is why ministry to people, honestly, on this level, I understand it's not for everybody. When we're in that people ministry, brother, it's a live fire exercise. We use live rounds, man. We nail it down. In ministry and dealing with people, you simply find two kinds of people, whether they're saved or whether they're lost. You have people of character. People of character will always take their lumps and, and, and take responsibility for their issues. And people of no character will always blame somebody else, blame it on you. There will always be a false witness about something or somebody. And that pretty well sums it up. Last week, we talked about perspective. And I tell people all the time, when you work with people in situations like this, you're going to find these things happen. You better figure out who you're working for. You better realize and understand that uh, uh, you, you, want a, you want a great study on a false witness? Study what they said about Christ. When he showed up, study how they bore false witness against him. Just take the time and, and detail the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the things that they lied about him and blamed him for and said. Trump said he had a devil. You hang out with publicans and sinners. It was one thing after the other. You know what the great conclusion is you'll come to when you get through with that? You ain't got any problems. You ain't got no problems. Now the seventh one. Ah, the best one. The one that caps off the other six and makes it an abomination. God hates sowing discord among the brethren. Now you might have guessed that the one that makes all this an abomination to the Lord and the worst one would have to be the one that Christians do the most. 
sowing discord. Now, in the Bible, this is called tail-bearing or slander. We call it gossip. But the great thing about the book of Proverbs is it sets up the great set of biblical principles that show why it's the worst one and does the most damage. Now, you see this one with Christ at the first coming. He faced the same problems in his ministry, and so will you. Psalms 31, 13 says, I was a reproach among all my enemies, but especially amongst my neighbors, and a fear to mine acquaintance. And they that did see me without fled from me. I am forgotten as a dead man out of mine. I am like a broken vessel, for I have heard the slander of many. Fear was on every side. While they took counsel together against me, they devised to take away my life. That's Christ prophetically speaking all the way back in Psalms of the slander that was coming his way. They lied about him, bore false witness against him. In fact, they committed all seven of these, if you want to study it out, against him. Why in the world would you think in the ministry you and I are something special? If the Lord went all through that to get to the cross for you and for me, why in the world can't you and I do that for him because of the cross? It's just that simple. Now, let's look at these. Proverbs chapter 10. You want to mark these in your Bible. Proverbs chapter 10. Here's the first one. Proverbs says a lot about it, man. Sets the foundation of, 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 of teaching on it. Look at Proverbs 10, 18. He that hideth hatred with lying lips, and he that uttereth slander is a fool. Now, you know what he just gave you there? He gave you the root problem. The root problem why people slander is you already hate that person in your heart. You just mask it with that fake smile you got. You just mask it with those nice sugar-coated words. You just mask the hatred in your heart by your lying lips. That's how you do it. People will tell you to face, I love you. Well, thank you for all you did for me. Well, I wouldn't know the Bible without you. Well, thank you for spending so much time and inside they hate you in your heart and they'll slander you when they get back to their friends and then who all live in the snake pit. They'll all be there together. I guarantee you. Look at Proverbs eleven thirteen, A talebearer reveal the secrets, but he that is of a faithful spirit concealeth the matter. You see that thing? Faithful spirit. It's what spirit you line yourself up to. A real Christian, when he gets a piece of information that has the potential issue to being a problem, he prays about it. He conceals the matter. He talks to God about it, not to his friends. He's faithful spirit. He prays about that situation. Look at Proverbs 18.8. A fool's mouth is his destruction, and his lips are the snare of his soul. The words of a talebearer are as wounds. They go down into the uttermost parts of the belly. Now, that's a great one, because here it shows you that slander, talebearing, slander, gossip is like a wound. And yet, it's a, it's a, it's a deep wound. And it's likened to a belly wound. And if anybody knows anything about wounds, the worst kind of wound you can get is a belly wound. Because of all the intricles that are in there with your intestines and whatever you had to eat and everything that's in there, you get a belly wound. It is the worst kind of wound that you could possibly get. And it says that it's a deep wound. 
It goes down into the innermost parts of the belly because slander will always be an assassination attempt of your character. It's like going up on the top of the Empire State Building, taking 10,000 goose feathers, dumping them all up into the wind, and then trying to get them all back. That's slander. That's discord among the brethren. That's how it works. Look at Proverbs chapter 20, verse 19. He that goeth about as a talebearer reveal his secrets. Now that's somebody that you told not to tell anybody, and the moment you told somebody, five other people know. I've had people come to me and I told me some problem they've had, and I've said, well, look, you know, this is something that you need to not get out there until you get the thing worked out. I said, have you told anybody? And he says, well, I just told you and so-and-so. And I said, well, you told me you're good. You told so-and-so 20 other people know as we speak. And I'm telling you the truth. He that goeth about as a talebearer revealed his secrets. Therefore meddle not with him that flattereth with his lips. Now, there's a great one to look at. I love you today, but I'll slander you tomorrow. That's what we got here. You can teach me the Bible. I wouldn't even know the right Bible if it weren't for you, but I'll assassinate your character tomorrow to gain an advantage. You helped me when I was down. You buried my mom when she passed away, when we didn't have anybody. I called you out of the clear blue when my dad died. You came. You, you buried them. Or you did this and you did that. And you were there for me. Now let me return the favor. I want to assassinate your character. That works. Those famous last words. Thanks so much. Love you. Remember who used to do that? Remember who used to do that, Joe? Love you, brother. Love you, brother. That's a private thing. Can't let you in on it. <clears throat> Look at Proverbs 26, 20. Where no wood is, there the fire goeth out. So where there is no tailbearer, strife seepeth. Now there it is. You know what a tailbearer does? Tailbearer keeps adding fuel to the fire. Tailbearers keep things going. Where no wood is, the fire goeth out. You want to stop a problem as quick as you can? Just quit talking about it. But oh no, there's some people that their whole life, that's all they do. They never win anybody to Christ. You never see them disciple anybody. They never come to anything on a consistent basis. They just, all they do is just, the thing that they bring to the party is their mouth. They keep issues alive and many times keep it from being fixed. And the reason why they don't, want it to get fixed is because they live for that kind of life. I call them vacuum cleaner Christians. They pick up every piece of dirt that you can find. How many times last year did you see in the news how many teenagers, and I know teenagers are very vulnerable to this. I mean, adults are too. It used to be that in the old days, men were men and women were glad of it. But, but today... It's, it's, it's not that way. Most men are just as wimpy as, as the women are. Amen. Not here, but you know what I'm talking about. And, but children, teenagers are always vulnerable. Remember how many times last year you heard the story of somebody bullying somebody on the Internet and saying things about them and slandering them and a the girl, kid went out and killed themselves? Yeah. That's where it goes. 
That's where it goes. And you may never, you may never have somebody go out and jump off a green elevator. You may never have somebody go out and hang themselves, but you may ruin somebody spiritually for the rest of their life. You know, there's a great illustration. No, I'm not done yet. Look at Proverbs 21, verse 22. 26, 22, I'm sorry. It may be 21, I'm not sure. The words of a talebearer are as wounds. They go down into the innermost parts of the belly. Burning lips and a wicked heart are like a pot shed covered with silver dross. You know what a pot shed is? That's a toilet seat. Your mouth is like a toilet seat covered in silver dross. <laughs> God, you got to love that one. <laughs> you better get some real lipstick on that one, I'll tell you. Again, deep wounds that are hard to fix. And it's hard to fix because it's always done behind your back. People who slander, gossip, talebearers all have one great characteristic together. They're all cowards. They'll never come to you face to face. And the reason they do that, and I maybe ain't figured this out that, the reason why they do that, because the greatest defense against slander is the truth. And if you go to somebody face to face and you confront them and you say, you said I said this, now I want to know because I didn't say it, then you can fix it. But when somebody doesn't want to fix it, it's because the greatest defense that you have in that particular case is the truth that's on your side. And they know it. They know it. It's never face to face. Now, there's a great illustration of how the devil will use God's people to mess up the work of God in the New Testament. Last Thursday night, in our dedicated study to that dispensation that we looked at, I told you about the Apostle Peter. And he's always been a hero of mine in the Bible. Peter, Peter didn't always get it right. But boy, I'll tell you what, Peter's heart was always in the right place. His method may have not always been acceptable, but his motive was always right on the money. And when you go over to Matthew chapter 16, verse 21 through 23, here's one of the great principles of how a saved man, in this case a disciple, in this case an apostle, can get used by the devil and destroy the work of God. But in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, and talking about Peter, it says this. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Now, you know what Peter's trying to do there? Peter's trying to get him not to go through the things he's got to go through to go to the cross. And there's a case where Peter was a, a disciple. He was an apostle. In fact, it's in the same chapter that he got the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And I showed you 
uh, Thursday night how he used those keys all the way up to Acts chapter 7. But the devil had gotten into his world and gotten into his influence, and the, de and the Lord realized that, and he addressed the devil through Peter because Peter was trying to get the Lord not to go to that cross. And let me just tell you, if the devil can use Peter and try to get to stop the work of God, he'll surely be able to use you and me. And when he does, it will be by aligning our spirit to these seven things and through association with them will get used to hurt the cause of Christ. It's simply that. You know, I'll leave you with this. I gave you the seven things, six things that God hates. The seven is an abomination. And I told you that association, you associate with these things or people who have these things, the lust of their fathers. Now let me give you the seven things that God loves. And these are what you ought to be associating with. This is what you do with the people you hang out with that are of good quality. This is where the concept of iron sharpeneth iron comes in. The seven things that God's love, the seven characteristics of his spirit versus the seven characteristics of the devil's spirit. The first thing that God loves is truth. That's why I can't hate, handle a lying tongue because he stands for truth. Doesn't matter how bad it is, he wants the truth. Doesn't matter how bad it makes you look, it only makes you look worse when you lie because you're going to get found out. He wants the truth. Because the number one characteristic of God that he loves is truth. Without that, God is nothing. The second thing that God loves is righteousness. So you want to hang out with people that not only have, love the truth of God, but have the righteousness of God. They want to live right. Nobody's perfect. Everybody's going to make mistakes. But you look for that character quality. The third thing that God loves is the souls of men. So we need to develop an attitude of loving the souls of men. We need to love people who are unsaved or people who just get saved. The thing that I love about this church is your response to new Christians or people who are lost. Uh, you, you, many of you in here are just absolutely phenomenal at what you do and reaching out to people and trying to help them. And it's because you've developed those characteristics in your life. The fourth thing that he loves is he, he loves his children. That's other Christians. Loving each other. You see, when, you're tr when you love each other as God loves you, then you never have any problems you can't work through. The reason why you and I get out of fellowship is because, not because of God. He's the standard of holiness. It's because when we get outside that standard, we don't want to take it back to him and make it right. Not his deal. And as long as you have two Christians hanging out together that want to make things work together and love God together and love truth and love righteousness and love souls and love each other, what can't you work out? What can't you work out? Now, the fifth thing that he loves is his son. And you ought to love him too. You ought to go through the Bible sometimes and, and, and mark all the places and write them down of what God says about his son. This is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased He's called the apple of God's eye in the book of Psalms. There's so many things that God says about his son that shows you how much he loved him. And you know what? If God loved him, uh, God loves him because of, of all that God is and all that Christ is. And that's why we should love him. 
We should love him for what he did for us. We should love him and understand all of the things that he went through. And that's why when you understand that and you get into ministry and you work with people, you have to go through these bad things that come up. They don't affect you. You don't fold up. You don't run in a corner someplace. You realize that there was a price to pay for you to have what you have. And for you to give other people that same thing that God gave you, now you have got to pay the price for it. You have got to pay the price for it. The sixth thing that he loves is the nation of Israel. He loves the Jew. We know enough from what we've studied on, on Thursday night that, and through the dispensations that we understand completely how that is. And the seventh thing he loves is the city of Jerusalem, the holy city. And of course we know why, because it falls around the nation of Israel and the kingdom of heaven. Someday God's son is going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem. These are the seven things that he loves. And when you build these seven things in your life, and when you look at these, some of them are practical and some of them are doctrinal, aren't they? Some of them deal with everyday relationships with people. Some of them deal with knowing the deeper things in your Bible, don't they? It's the whole counsel of God here. It runs a span from what's practical of me and you to what's doctrinal when I get into the Bible that I really understand, like a lot of things that we try to lay out for you here. These are the things. So you want to remember that Proverbs shows you how the devil thinks. He shows you the six things that God hates that make up the character qualities or inqualities of the devil. And the seventh one is the abomination that caps it off. You and I have to align our spirit to either God's spirit or an unclean spirit. We can do that as unsaved people. You can do that as saved people. It's your choice. It's your spirit that you decide. Your spirit is like the rudder of a big ship. It, that little rudder on the back of a four football field tanker, that little rudder, one, one fifth of the size of that ship, turns that ship every which way it goes. And your spirit, no matter how big you are, how strong you are, or how tough you think you are, it's that little spirit that sets the direction and the guide of which way you go in life. You either give it to the characteristics of the devil or you give it to the characteristics of God. Just that simple. Next week, I'll show you the doctrinal aspect of this and (laughs) you Bible students will, will, will love this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We do love you so much for all that you do for us. Thank you for today. Thank you for this great chapter, Lord, and all these great things that are in it. Help each one of us look inside ourselves to find the truth about us. And, Lord, help us to work on those things that we need to work on. And we love you now. We'll thank you for all that we do. Bless throughout this day all the things that we have to do. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. As you're dismissed, please take time this morning to sign up for the uh, Memorial Day picnic. Don't dilly-dally around about it. If you're not on there, get on there. And I'll call you up in about five minutes. we got to get going for a restart. God bless you. You're dismissed.